Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Heidi Hankel. Heidi is a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary and is the pastor of Bethesda Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I give you Heidi Hankel. Heidi, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You are one of the few people we're just talking about who actually records in the bunker here with me live. Bill, you're local to Greater Philadelphia. Bill yep. Boer is usually the only other person that is live with me in studio. So welcome, not just back to the podcast, but into the hidden bunker layer here. <laughs> Thank you. So it's interesting. We got three interesting texts. I mean, I say that as if I would say, oh, we've got really boring texts, which I never do. But the first text is First Kings. Eight and the lectionary breaks this up. It's like verse one, then verse six, then verses ten through yeah. eleven. Those are optional texts, and then then twenty two through thirty, and then forty one through forty three. Basically, this is Solomon kind of dedicating the temple here. He assembles everybody together, and the the priests come out. It's like bigger than the mummers prayed. We've got the cloud <laughs> filling the house of the Lord. Uh, the priest can't even stand and minister because the glory cloud comes. And I mean, I wonder what they do at that point, right? Like, well, we were supposed to put on a ministry show here and we can't, you know, it's like, uh, we can't have church because the Lord showed up. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> what, what do you do when the Lord shows up? So then you have Solomon. Uh, Solomon apparently is not distracted by this. I mean, he uh, spread, spread out, spreads out his hands to heaven and prays to God uh, and is, and, you know, is celebratory. And and there are several petitions he prays, right? So there you yeah. go. This is the dedication of the temple. Big moment in Israel's history. Absolutely. This is the part where the covenant actually comes into some type of a physical fulfillment of a promise for them. God's been leading them through the desert. He's been uh, taking them through the land. And finally, they have a place and they're like, this is where we belong. Yeah. And they build this physical temple and they Solomon has included all all of Israel through their elders and their chiefs. He's made them all a part of this entire process of building this temple and now bringing the ark into it. And he gets to this moment, he's organized so much of this, and then he's like, screw it, let's just worship from the heart. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an interesting scene. And it is a sort of, you know, I, like it's climactic in the sense of you, there's this there's this essay I read I I forget the or author maybe Jay Gordon Tom Jay Gordon Thomas or something it's an essay on like in a it's an essay in a book on uh, the Bible and eschatology or something but he says you know if I was going to summarize the Bible in one line I'd say it's a story of a holy God wanting to dwell with a holy people in a holy place. And so you have this sort of, you know, the in Eden, you have the beginnings of this, right? In that, in that there's this sort of, you have the embryonic form of the people of God, you know, the, in miniature, and you have this holy place, but it gets kind of defiled. It gets, it gets, it gets distorted. And so, you know, you have this story of sort of the, the, the blessing trying to undo the curse. And so here you have this sort of, 
this picture of hey god is coming down onto earth dwelling in this special like it's like god's like it's almost like okay we're not renters anymore we're getting our permanent mailing address (laughs) and it's going to be here in jerusalem in the temple yeah for them this is permanency it's their first moment of permanency through this entire thing so as solomon is praying this he actually one of the petitions he asks in that moment is for god to actually come and dwell there not necessarily live there, but to dwell there with his people. And he's not, he knows it's not the permanent home for God. I mean, he says, you know, nobody could build anything that could house you. But there's this sense of Solomon wants a permanent place for people to become uh, accessible, you know, for them to be able to come to God at any point in time and to have their sins forgiven and to be made righteous. And it's it's this permanent connection place with God that he's looking to make for the people. And that's one of his, he just starts praying off the the things of his heart. And that's one of his main petitions, dwell here so that your people can come to you at any point in time. And he goes on and on. One of the uh, petitions that's further on in the passage is, let the foreigner come and let their prayers to you be equal to our prayers that they can receive righteousness and know you which is a pretty powerful prayer coming from a group of people who are called chosen and have spent their entire days beating the foreigner off the land to claim their permanency. That's a pretty incredible prayer for him. Yeah, and it's a prayer that Isaiah says will come true, right? Like the, the prophecies in Isaiah imagine that the people of God will come someday and and dwell, you know, in the land that that, that I mean that the Gentiles will come and recognize that the God of Israel is is the true God. It's funny. I think of that scene in Return of the King, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where everybody kneels before Aragon and his and his bride, and then everyone can see the hobbits, right? And what's funny is uh, throughout the throughout the story, a lot of people don't even know who hobbits are, and these people that no one knows who they are, they wind up saving Middle Earth, and then Arag- they start to bow, and Aragon says, "No, we bow to you." And it's almost like this prophecy of like, "Hey, this little kingdom that." Most of the world of world history, you know, throughout history, it doesn't connect with a lot of people in the world, although it does through Christian history and through the diaspora and stuff. But this people that are so small in proportion are key to the healing of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the middle of this, Solomon's praying that this actually becomes not just a place of dwelling for God, not just a place where the ark has a home. But it becomes a place of testimony and of witness. And this this symbol that they've had of their presence of their God actually ends up taking on a whole new meaning when it's actually placed in the Holy of Holies. They never take the armaments out that they've used to carry the Ark of the Covenant, those long poles that they had. They never take them out once they place them there. They stretch way too long. But it's this sense of there was a journey to get here. And in here is the presence of God, the witness. And if you're willing to come in and repent— you're going to receive the covenant no matter who you are, even though God says, this is my chosen people. So we begin to see the gospel from Christ all the way back in this moment at this temple. Yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, the covenant always gets more inclusive, right? Like when God chooses somebody, it's not over against, but it's always for the sake you know, of other people. Also, you have, it's interesting too, thinking about what you're saying about the, the connection to Jesus, that, that Jesus we see in the story of Jesus what people expect from the temple, healing, cleansing, the word being taught, right? Like all the, like eating and drinking, like all these things happen in the ministry of Jesus. This, this great commentary I love from a friend of mine, Peter Lightheart wrote, 
And in the end of this, his commentary in the section, he says, Yahweh establishes his house at the center of Israel and stretches his arms out in invitation to a stubborn people who refuse to turn to him and be healed. This too is Christologically significant for when the human temple appears, God's people refuse to turn toward him as well. The story of First and Second Kings is the story of a rejected temple, a rejected and suffering Messiah and a mediator, a temple destroyed but destined to be raised on the third day. A temple Christology thus works out in a story of cross and empty tomb. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, that we don't often think of that as contemporary Christians as, as temple Christology, but Jesus is the temple. Yes. Yeah, we're going to get into a little bit of that when we go to the next passage in John, but just this sense of asking the question, where does God find his home? Yeah. You know, and they were, Israel needed such permanency and such um, physicality to their stuff. They, They wanted a king who was there and in charge. They wanted a God who dwelled with them. And they kept missing the spirituality of this forgiveness of God's hesed, his holiness and his faithfulness. And that's all Solomon can see as he's praying is God's faithfulness to his promises and his covenant. And Israel still kind of misses the point for the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it will have to be through, yeah, losing the temple and exile and re- and, and an exile return for, for them to, to receive the true temple. I'm just going to make a total aside on this now. I like aside. Total commentaries on this. I think we still struggle in the church today with this. I think the church is so focused on buildings that we have lost how to just be the dwellers of the living God, the, the ones who have him inside of us. Like we actually think if a building closes, a church closes, that somehow the church is getting less. And I actually think this new generation, because we have access to gospel and to people talking and to worship in a different way. We can listen to our podcasts. We can listen to worship services online. It is so not within a physical building that this generation receives the church and is the church in a completely different way. Um, yeah, it's he, almost like temple versus tabernacle spirituality, right? Because the temple is yes. kind of fixed, but the tabernacle is a place, but it's a movable feast. And yes. you can kind of, and in First John, or John 1, it says, the word became flesh. And I think the Greek there is tabernacled among us. Yes. And if I share a table with my neighbors, and in that moment, I share love and I share the hesed of God. Has he not been present there and has he not dwelt among us and have we not had church? Yeah. And so it's, I, I think what we're seeing, I, I actually really see the church changing for the next generation. I think it's going to look very different than worshiping in buildings. And I think we're having a very difficult time getting used to that. We keep saying, oh, the church is dying. The church is dying. And I actually think it's just changing. And it's changing for the better, and it's changing in a way that's actually getting back to its roots of God living amongst us, not in a building, not in a temple. We are the place he dwells. Yeah, our temple not made with hands. Yeah. 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 There in the middle of the circle he stands, search, seeking. Just one touch of his trembling hand, the answer will be found. Daylight waits while the old man sings. So on to Ephesians. Here we go. We've got this is like the uh this is like the Game of Thrones. Put on the armor, you know, picturing a gladiatorial <laughs> battle here. But, you know, this is, you know, Paul is coming towards the end of this letter, and he's, he encourages them, the church Ephesus to be, it's Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, encourages them to be, to be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his power, and to put on the whole armor of God that they may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he, you know, he talks about the different, you know, the you've got the well, then he says it's interesting that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And then he lists, you know, the bless the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the you know, the 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 shoes of peace and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which for people that have been Bible camp or anything, your sword drills, so you pull out your, uh, so yeah. And then he encourages them to persevere, uh, you know, the, the, and, and he's probably right in, he, in prison when he's writing this. So he's, I mean, he's persevering, <laughs> calling them to persevere, uh, in the midst of their own struggles. Yeah. It's interesting, this passage, I mean, Paul has been talking about the building up and the edifying of the church previous, and then suddenly he goes into this warfare mode, and it it seems almost kind of like it was an afterthought stuck on the end of his letter. But I think he's actually, he's shifting it to kind of talking about, for the Ephesians, they weren't in a warfare mode, but it was, they were dealing with false prophecy, they were dealing with false teaching, and it was sort of more in the sense of... Okay, you can't just accept everything. You've got to start girding yourself, anticipating things, and responding to things. And I think he's he's trying to teach a very young church how to stand the test of time with this. And he actually, the, I love the beauty of the language. I mean, this this language Paul would have heard before already in the Old Testament. This is not new. This actually came from Isaiah. Um, it's in Isaiah fifty nine one and you know fifty nine seventeen. And 11.5, it talks about the different pieces. So, I mean, this picturing of where we get this armor from actually comes from stuff that Isaiah describes God wearing himself. Isaiah sees a vision. He says, God is girded with the belt of righteousness. I mean, he's he he's actually laying out the different pieces. And Paul, is he knows this. He's a scholar in the, in the early scriptures. He knows this. So, I mean, as he's, I think he's trying to give them a picture of this isn't just a vision. This is actually stuff spiritually you can do to not just protect yourself, but also, you know, to, to stand the test. You have to teach another generation when I'm gone. So it actually makes a good ending to his letter that he's, when you, when you look at it in the process of what he's trying to do with it, it makes a little more sense. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that there are, you find in Second Temple Judaism other apocalyptic movements that use language like this, that use spiritual warfare language. But what's different about Paul's is they usually talk about this coming battle at the end. And prepare for this. And Paul, for Paul, it's like the battle's already happened in the in the death and resurrection of Christ. So it's not that gird up so that Christ is going to lead us into this decisive battle, and you know the bad guys are going to get it, and it's you know it'll be it'll be gory like Game of Thrones or something. It's more like hey, the battle's been won. He won it through losing. You know, he 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 won it in weakness, and now we have his power. And so in the time between the times until he returns, you know, the victory's been won. And so live in light of that victory. You know, live in light of the uh, what's been won for you. And so this it, it, it's not put up the armor so we can win it. It's been won for you. So, you know, live in light of the victory. I 100% agree. But Paul is not looking at like there's a battle in front. And if we don't win this, we're all lost. Yeah, It's not <laughs> like sometimes you hear Christians in politics say, like, if we don't get oh out to God. the vote or the war on Christmas. I mean, it's not that mm-hmm. sort of sort of. In fact, he says it's not against flesh and blood. Yeah. And it's interesting just for those of you who love your grammar in Greek. Uh, that very first uh, verse, six ten, it says, "Finally, be strong in the Lord and be uh, and in the strength of His power." That's normally how it's translated, but the actual Greek is, "Let yourself be strengthened." 
So it's let yourself be strengthened from his power and by his power. It's not anything you're going to do. All you need to do is let it happen. He's doing this for you, which goes back again to Paul's teaching about edification. He's not really, he's talking about being built up. He's not talking about, we're going to war, you know, put you on your armor. Here we go. It's the war for Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times we talk about, we we go build the kingdom. And actually the only language in the New Testament about the kingdom of God is you receive it or you inherit it. It's that God is the builder, right? Like we're not the builder. And yeah, our own spiritual development is 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 received. I mean, it's a gift. Right? And for you theological scholars, my question would be, if Jesus didn't win the victory that we still have to go out and do it to accomplish the victory, then my Christology has a problem. It's got a hole in it. <laughs> because if he's not strong enough that he didn't accomplish the victory already and I still somehow have to accomplish the victory, then I'm not as inept as the Bible tells me. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting because it's like, does Jesus accomplish salvation or just the possibility of salvation? Like, did he make it possible or did he accomplish it? And and yeah, I think you're right. Cause that, that makes all the difference in, in how, how big your Jesus is. Yes. Yeah. And also in your theology of salvation, your theology of Christ, all of that plays into this, um, this core belief that Christ accomplished everything, the salvation on the cross, in the grave and through the resurrection. And if we don't believe that, then none of the rest of it makes any sense. That my friend Tellian wrote this book. It's called the title was "Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's something exactly. I love that. Speaking of Jesus, let's go on to the gospel reading. Here we have John chapter 6, verses 56 through 69. My friend Jason Michelli, who's a regular listener, he's been on the podcast, and he's he says he hates the lectionary in the summer because no one should spend this much time in John 6. But I love John 6. <laughs> but here, here again, you, you get this continual like difficulty with these sayings, and Jesus says, you know, those who eat, his flesh and drink his blood abide in him and, and he in them. And he talks about he live him living because of the father. And again, this, he, he's the bread come down from heaven, not like the manna, which the, which their ancestors ate and died. And the disciples, it's not only the crowd that, that are scandalized. Now even the disciples say this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And she says, does that offend you? Well, then what are you going to say if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before? Um, and then I love that at the conclusion after they go back and forth, he, Jesus asked the 12, because some of the disciples turn back, like his numbers thin out. Talk about church growth. Je- Jesus preaches a bad church growth sermon because a lot of the disciples leave. Or does he, right? Sometimes you get the, the, the hangers on out and things happen. But And he asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We come, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So there, it's interesting that, that we don't have any alternatives left. <laughs> but it's a fascinating passage. And I'm curious, 
what is it that offends them so much? You know, that it's interesting is we don't really know the exact nature. Is it what Jesus is saying about himself? Is it the cannibalism? It's it's hard to say. Uh, I, my Here's my theory. This is the Heidi theory. Take it for what it is. I like it. All right. The HT instead of hashtag the Heidi theory. There you go. So he has preached. Um, he has fed the 5,000 while he was doing that. He was speaking to them. And Jesus has this consistent thing that he does. He Throughout his entire ministry, he says, you know, you heard it said this way in the law, and then he one-ups it. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. I tell you, love your enemies. And he keeps taking what they knew and then one-upping it. And you can hear that so many times, and then people are like, all right, that's enough. All right, just just stop there. <laughs> and as every time he one-ups the law and puts it into the gospel— Every time he takes that and just expounds on it, you know, who is your neighbor? He starts preaching the Samaritan passage. You know, who is your neighbor? Well, your neighbor may not look like you, love you, like you, look, you know, sound like you, might even be your enemy, but I tell you to love them. So he, he's he's constantly throughout his entire ministry doing this, but he's fed the 5,000 and he preaches a really hard passage at the end of that and almost everybody leaves. Almost everybody goes. And it's so incredible. And at this point, the disciples, it says, it, you know, in the passage, it says they're specifically having trouble with the passage of eat my flesh, drink my blood. And people still have trouble with that today. I mean, everybody's like, are you a cannibal? Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> so I, I think it's just it, he, Jesus is constantly doing this stuff through his ministry. And here he challenges us once again, again, with the physicality versus the spirituality. And this, even the disciples struggle with this. Yeah, yeah, and it, I think that's right. And I mean, there's something here. I wonder if the you know maybe the background also is this is is getting together the, the Lord's Supper. I mean, you know, like this actual concrete meeting together to share the bread and the cup. You know, uh, you know, in the early church and people falling away from that. Yeah, it's interesting. Or is it is it what he claims about himself that he's from the Father? I mean, it's it, it's interesting how like you're right. I think there's something intensifying here. And yet, John doesn't tell us ex- the exact nature of their questions. Like, he just tells us that they're struggling. And it's almost like Jesus says, well, you know, what are you going to do when I'm lifted up? No, I mean, you could read that two ways, because a lot of times lifted up means the cross in John, where where the real exaltation is the cross. not the. But then here it seems like it actually is talking about the ascension, because he says, when you see me go back to where... I came from. And you think of even in John where, is it Mary Magdalene that goes, he says, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet gone back to the father, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's almost like you're saying, well, wait, do you see me? I mean, wait, do you see me come back to the father? Then you're really going to have some stuff to tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, John's gospel focuses so much on the spirituality of who Christ is rather than the physicality. I mean, Matthew and Luke, they deal with the genealogy, they deal with all that stuff, but John almost focuses so much on Christ's spiritual identity. And he brings out how much people struggle with that in this. I mean, in the passage, Jesus actually says, you know, if you eat my um, eat my body, drink my blood, and it says that disciples are having a problem with that, and he says, what's the problem? I give you spirit and life. Right. And I mean, John is trying to bring out that you're so focused on what physically is happening in front of you, you are not hearing the words he is speaking to you, and it's spirit and life he imparts in this. Yeah, you see it like with Nicodemus. What am I going to have to go back into my mother's womb? Or right. the woman at the well, well, like, where's this living water? I don't want to come to the well anymore. Or yeah. you have this, you, you, there's there's this constant sort of, or even the man born blind, 
he sees the power of Jesus while the people that criticize it are actually spiritually blind. So you yes. have all this, there's always these two layers. Yeah, I think there's, you're right, there's that here too, right? There's this sort of, look, you, you saw this stuff, but you missed the meaning here. Yeah, and I think if you're if you're looking for a theme for this week's lectionaries, you could definitely do the the first Kings passage in this one and really talk about our struggle with the physical and we miss what God is doing in the spiritual repeatedly. That is our human struggle on a regular basis in our communication with God. And you just it we have it now. This will not change over human history. We will always struggle with this. Where is our faith based? And where are we planted in our foundation? Because what we choose to see and hear more often will be where we put our basis of reality. So if you believe your basis of reality is in the physical, then sure, you might see a war on Christianity happening. (laughs) But if you choose that your faith is in the spiritual and God does not dwell in a building and it is not about what somebody says to you, it is entirely about the faith and what comes out of you, then... We're not actually at a war at Christianity. We are in the kingdom. Amen. And yeah, I think it's interesting because oftentimes we, we struggle in the church, either people that are that never get beyond the physical or separate the spiritual so much from the physical. And yet this is, you know, the whole John 6 thing where, where Jesus really, you know, the, this commentary I've been reading lately, Dale Bruner on the Gospel of John, he says, you know, the sacraments aren't second ways of salvation. They're just uh, different form, tangible forms uh, earthy forms of that one salvation that's Jesus. And and the spiritual comes to us in the concrete, and oftentimes we either either see the concrete and miss the, the real spirit behind it, you know, or we think, oh, the concrete, that's too ordinary for God to really meet us in it. And you're saying, yeah, it's it, that the God is present all around if we have ears to hear, you know, and, and, and eyes to see. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, it's just a powerful theme that you can do, I mean, throughout most of the scriptures, but those two particularly this week, you really can um, begin to talk about the heart and your spirit versus what we are physically seeing, needing, experiencing, and expecting. And blessings to all those who are preaching to people that are hearing and expecting, and may they see and hear the risen Christ. Amen. Thanks for being with me, Heidi. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Heidi for coming back on the podcast, and thanks to you again for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.